All thanks and praise is due to God. We seek God's help and forgiveness. We seek refuge in God from the evil within ourselves and the consequences of our evil deeds. Whoever God guides will never be led astray, and whoever God allows to go astray will never find guidance. I bear witness that there is no God but God, alone without any partners, and I bear witness that Muhammad is God's servant and God's messenger. O oh, you who believe, be mindful of God, as is God's due, and make sure you devote yourselves to God to your dying moment. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of God, the most compassionate, the most merciful. Dear sisters, to this beautiful and blessed community, I want to begin today with an invocation of joy, with an acknowledgement of the joy in the world, which we don't always do these days, in this room of the joy in our hearts and my own joy in being here with you today by the grace of Allah in the Women's Mosque of America. The best example of the type of joy I am talking about is that of a baby's laughter, of when a baby just bursts out laughing, in that moment their whole face just lights up with noor, their eyes open and they gleam with light. And that is that light, that noor, that reminds us of the light that is always around us. That is the joy I would like to share with you here from my heart to yours, of this collective recognition that Noor is all around us and that we are in the presence of the divine. Let us set an intention for this year and onward, inshallah, that we may move in joy, in the constant knowledge of God's light around all of us and its continual presence in all of the spaces of and between our lives. It is this light, inshallah, God willing, that I understand is what Surah 49, verse 13 of the Quran tells us, enjoins us to do, to come to know one another, to seek out the light that connects us and binds us in the love of God. It is in these joyful connections, these ways of knowing one another as Muslim women, as Muslims, as human beings, that is the subject of my khutbah today. Because at the same time that I want to celebrate this joy, I don't believe it's possible to unmoor these joyful connections, our ways of knowing and coming to know one another away from the social, cultural, and political realities of the world in which we live and specifically in the United States, the nation that for most of us, for better or for worse, call home. We cannot do this apart from the ways that history of race, histories of race and racism so fundamentally and intimately shape our lives and experiences as Muslims. Whether we are aware of it or not, race and racism influence how we encounter and engage Islam how we move and interact inside and outside of different Muslim communities, and how we conceive of ourselves and others as Muslim women. So today, I want to talk about the legacies of race and racism in our lives, in the lives of US Muslim women, and to share with you a little bit about myself, but more about the lives and the stories of the women who came before me, before us, women who enable our presence in this room today, women who also strove to come to know one another 
in and through Islam. I want to talk about their legacies of broken hearts, of their strength and healing, and of how we too must break our hearts in order to survive and flourish as individuals, as communities, and as Muslim women in America. So a dear and very wise friend of mine asked me a question a few months ago. She is a practicing Sufi dervish, and we had been talking about the ways to incorporate very simple dhikr practices, dhikr remembrances of God into our everyday lives to find connections with Allah during these very tumultuous political times. I think we can all agree. My book had just been published, a vol volume which tells the stories of US Muslim women from the early 20th century to the present, and it's focused on the lives and subjectivities and labors of primarily African-American Muslim women, who until quite recently were the vast majority of Muslim women in this country. So this past year, the past five years in fact, had been exhausting for me, not just because I was writing the book um, and my work as a professor, but also because of the relentless bad news every single day, the tainted water in Flint, Michigan, the devastation wrought by violence in Syria, Yemen, Gaza, police shootings, mass incarceration, the persecution of Muslims in China, the constant and ongoing surveillance and harassment of Muslim communities in this country, which, by the way, did not begin with the election of our current president, do not speak his name, but has become more sinister in tenor and tone in these last two years. So these are all topics that I teach about and write about and am confronted with in my work every single day. And so unsurprisingly, they take a toll. And as with so many of us, I also have responsibilities as a caretaker, in my case of three children. Um, I'm also a spouse. That is work. Uh, <laughs> a daughter, a friend. Um, and these are all sources of joy and comfort to me. Of course they are, alhamdulillah. But also, as I'm sure you all know, they are all part of this constant improvisation and chaos of being a woman in the 21st century. So the question my friend asked me, and this question sort of stopped me in my tracks. You know, it's one of those where you go, hmm, I don't know. It was, it, the question was this. She asked me, what breaks your heart? And in the moment she asked it, I was taken aback. Because here we were trying to come up of ways of self-care, you know, as, as Hasna said, to recover from exhaustion, to try to reconnect with God. And she was asking me, what would break you? You know, and I, and I didn't want to think about this. I didn't want to think about heartbreak or sadness or despair. What did that have to do with moving forward, with spiritual growth? And I, and I can't remember uh, how our conversation ended that day, just that I didn't have an answer. But I couldn't stop thinking about the question. What breaks your heart? In a lot of discussions in our communities, I hear people speak about how notions of women's rights and social justice are hurting our deen, our faith, our belief, and how the study of classical Islam is all we need to address all of society's ills dealing with racial and gender inequality. They tell us to turn away from activism, away from the work of anti-racism and feminism. And in particular, I have observed how feminism is a loaded word 
for many Muslims, and rightfully so in many ways, as it has at times connoted a set of practices that has been used to justify colonization of Islamic lands and to posit against the oppression of women in Islam. For some, feminism is defined by a particular political agenda, women demanding to work outside the home, demanding equality with their spouses and men more broadly, and demanding physical control and autonomy over their bodies, in particular regards to reproductive rights. So in other words, feminism becomes understood as women demanding, as something that produces demanding women, and thus women who do not submit to God. Yet as a scholar of US history, and specifically of racial and ethnic history in the United States, I view this as a very narrow definition of feminism, one which only describes the political desires of a very small subset of American women. When I hear platitudes like this, right, such broadly brushed denunciations of feminism and social justice, what I realize is that a lot of Muslims in this country and many who hold positions of authority and privilege in our communities do not know much about the history of Islam in the United States. How this religion came to grow and flourish amongst women who were seeking gender justice and racial equality, who sought their full humanity both in the society where they lived and in the eyes of God. These women were primarily working class women of color, black American women who were never privileged enough to have to demand to work outside the home, right? They already had to work outside the home. These were women who already by necessity held a great deal of financial authority in their homes, who ran their households and controlled the money in their homes because they had to not because they wanted to. And these were women for whom bodily autonomy, the right to have ownership over their own bodies. This was not a matter of choice or desire or even or pleasure, but quite literally a matter of life or death. So I am speaking of black Muslim women, women who might never call themselves feminists or explicitly say they were fighting for social justice, but who from the earliest decades of the 20th century would come to discover and engage Islam as a way of seeking a religion, a lifestyle, a political orientation, and as an identity they had hoped would imbue them with the dignity of Allah and intrinsic human rights. From the 1920s until the 1970s, in groups like the Moorish Science Temple, the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam, the Darul Islam, and the Nation of Islam, black American women embraced Islam and found ways of becoming and being Muslim in the face of virulent anti-blackness, sexual violence, and the continual degradation that working class black women confronted in their everyday lives in the urban north, even long after the formal end of slavery. They did so because they wanted an alternative to Christianity, because they saw Christianity as upholding racist logics that dehumanized them as black women. They did so because they sought community, networks of support in places like Chicago, Philadelphia, Detroit, New York, where many had just migrated from the South in what was called the Great Migration. They sought educational advancement, a network where they could learn of a new religion and its rituals and culture. 
They sought new identities and global affiliations. To be part of a religion where they thought they could transcend the boundaries of race in America and become global citizens, members of the Ummah. And they sought safety, safety from hardship, from violence, from the constant harm that presented itself from their bosses at work, in the streets where they walked home, and even in their homes, the same places we seek safety from and in today. These women made lives, built communities, crafted rituals, and figured out ways of living and worshiping as Muslims in places where there was no such thing. In my research, I tell the story of one of these early African-American Muslim women, Florence Watts, whom after she converted to Islam in 1922 through the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam on the south side of Chicago, took on the name Zainab. After her conversion, Zainab continued to work as a cook in a fraternity house and lived in a rented room with her husband George and daughter Anna Aurelia in a boarding house with two other families cramped conditions. I think about Sister Zainab and wonder how she found places to pray at her job, you know, living, working as a cook in a fraternity house, living in a boarding house, right? How did she make salat in the cramped spaces of her room? How did she learn to cook and dress as she imagined a Muslim woman would? Women like Sister Zainab invented themselves anew in Islam as Muslim women all the while working, heading households, advocating for their rights, seeking and fighting for justice for not only themselves, but for their families, communities, and their people. Because, as I would come to see and understand through my research, Islam was a salve for broken hearts. Hearts that may have been broken by slavery, by migration, by hardship or illness, by a lost husband, a stolen child. It was a salve for the degradations of racism and sexism that they encountered every single day. They hoped, prayed, that being Muslim would heal these wounds and keep them safe. Being Muslim was an act of social justice activism, a desire for gender justice, not only expressed in public protest or action, but in the silence of their prayers, in the sweetness of fasting, of reading Quran with your sisters after a long and hard day's work. In Surah 94, Al-Insha'Allah, the expansion, Allah sends a message to the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, as the Prophet is reckoning with the responsibility of his prophecy, with the responsibility of its message. It is an incredibly poignant, loving, and, and I think a very intimate surah, one that has comforted and guided me on so many occasions since my conversion to Islam 15 years ago. Have we not expanded for you your breast and eased you of your burden which weighed so heavily on your back? And have we not exalted for you your renown? Then surely with hardship comes ease. Surely with hardship comes ease. 
Therefore, when you are free from one task, resume another and seek and strive to please your Lord. In this surah, we see how Allah sees and acknowledges the prophets, peace and blessings be upon him, how he sees his burden, all that he is carrying with him, not just because of receiving prophecy and revelation, but because of the entirety of the burdens of his life that he carries in his role as the prophet of Islam. To put it another way, Allah sees him and recognizes his burden and offers comfort in those beautiful lines. Then surely with hardship comes ease. Surely with hardship comes ease. Allah tells the Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, that ease comes with, not after hardship, that there is ease in hardship, that hardship and ease are not distinct nor discrete states of being, but are inexorably intertwined in the spaces of our lives. I believe it's important to note how the surah begins by referring to the heart through the word sadrak, which is translated into English at various times, depending on which translation you look at, as chest and breast and sometimes heart. The word doesn't refer to our hearts in the literal sense, but reminds us, and, and I think we've all felt this, of those sensations of tightness, of constriction, and of actual pain that we feel when our spiritual hearts are overburdened, scared, or devastated. Or to put it another way, when we are heartbroken. Allah describes his alleviation of the Prophet's burden, peace and blessings be upon him, as an expansion of the chest. You know, when you take breath in, that the Prophet may experience Allah's grace as a spiritual and physical presence, as breath, as acceptance of hardship and its accompanying ease. It is when the Prophet's heart breaks, when our hearts break, that we invite Allah's expansion and all of its joy and light into our lives. Our brokenness opens us to Allah's light, to nur, so we may commingle hardship with ease, that we know that to experience hardship is ease, so we may at once heal and also know that our hearts will, inshallah, break once more. I say what I have said. May God forgive all of us. Alhamdulillah. <clears throat> all praises and thanks are due to God alone. So as I said earlier, and I mentioned it quickly in passing, I'm a convert to Islam who became interested in the faith while working as a social justice activist and scholar of race and ethnic studies in the US 
right after 9-11, like right after 9-11. And it was in this time that I worked with lots of different groups in the Bay Area. We were organizing marches and actions against this sudden uptick in violence, which has never quite abated, um, and against Muslim communities during that time. And, and so I started working with a lot of Muslims. I'm from the East Bay in the Bay Area. And it was then, as, as Allah so often does, uh, that God blessed me with the presence of an amazing man in my life, a man named Badi, who is my now husband of almost 15 years. Badi is a second generation African-American Muslim from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who I met while I was seeking and who has always encouraged me to learn and follow my own path in learning about Islam no matter if it diverges or is different than his. And for this, I just want to say Alhamdulillah. So while I was working as a social justice activist and researcher with Muslim communities in the Bay Area right after 9-11, I quickly found myself drawn to Islam, not just as a subject of research, but as a presence, and a presence that I wanted in my life. And so firstly, it was just because of its simplicity in, in its sense. So I had explored Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, and Islam was the first religion that just clicked for me. It's like the five pillars, direct relationship with God, I get it, right? So that was, that was uh, you know, something that immediately kind of came into my life and touched me. Secondly though, and almost just as importantly, as a first-generation Asian-American woman, born in Oakland, the only daughter of Chinese immigrants, and raised in the East Bay, and I had attended UC Berkeley in the 1990s, and there I discovered histories of Chinese exclusion and Japanese internment, black power and women of color's activism, Native American and indigenous resistance movements, and the struggle of Latinx farmer farm workers led by leaders like Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, I was drawn to Islam because in Oakland, black Muslims sell papers under the bridge and everybody stops and talks to them. And everybody eats Muslim fish sandwiches, well we used to when they were still there, and we all listen to rapper Most Def talking about Umi says shine a light on the world, and Malcolm X's image and legacy was and is everywhere. Islam had and has a presence there, a history that stood on the side of the people, a presence that I wanted to know and become a part of. So I embarked on studying Islam, both as a faith practice and as a part of American history. And in the years that followed, my education about how to be a Muslim, so I'm learning how to be a Muslim, an American Muslim woman, and then my research on race, gender, and the histories and legacies of Muslim in the US, these are absolutely kind of side by side in my life. And so one evening uh, in late 2003, and I was trying to pray Isha alone in my room, I was still learning how to pray. Right? I went into the first ruku, the bow, and, and all of a sudden, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but my life started to flash before my eyes. And there was all these times when I realized that God and the angels had saved me, like literally come into my life and pulled me out of these dangerous and difficult situations and where my own hardship had, was intermingled and imbued with ease. And when I realized that the presence of God had been in my life, even when I had not invited or sought it. 
And so by the time I was in sajda, in prostration, I, I was in tears. I mean, I was literally in tears. And I was overwhelmed by the recognition of God's mercy. And I'll never forget. I can remember exactly kind of the level of light in the room, what it felt like, the smell, the sound, everything. So early in 2004, I took my shahada, the proclamation that there is no God but God and Muhammad is his messenger. And I have been striving to invite and recognize God's presence into my life ever since. Badi and I were married in 2005, and we now have three children. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Soraya, 21, who's my stepdaughter, though I love her as my own. Samaya, age 12, almost 13, uh-oh. And Safia, age 10. So being Muslim for me coincided not only with my scholarly research, but also with my journey of how to be a partner and a spouse, a Muslim and a partner and a spouse, and to be the mother of three US Muslim girls of African American and Asian American descent in a post 9-11 world. These girls are why I decided to focus on women as the primary subject of my research, so they could see the women who had come before them women from whom they could draw strength and inspiration, and from whom they would see that Muslim women like them, committed to justice, desiring a relationship with God, had always been here. That they were part of their, our history, this nation's history, even if it's never taught in schools, even if no one ever sees it on TV or in books, they, these women, they were and they are here. So what breaks my heart? As the mother of these three young US Muslim women, these African American and Asian American Muslim women, and as the daughter-in-law of Khadija Malik, I gotta shout out my mother-in-law, of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who converted to Islam in the late 1960s and wore a niqab, a full face covering, back in the day when nobody knew what that was and what the heck she was doing and everyone gave her a hard time. It absolutely and utterly breaks my heart to imagine that my daughters, because of their race, their gender, their lack of Arabic skills, because they have not studied Islam abroad or in the right places, because their mom is a convert, because their mom is a social justice activist and feminist, because they do or don't cover their hair. It breaks my heart that my girls may not be overwhelmed with the joy of God's presence in their lives, that they may not, inshallah, one day go into sajda and be flooded with the awareness of God's compassion and mercy for all of us. It breaks my heart that my mother-in-law, my sisters-in-law, my sister friends, and more than I want to mention, the African-American Muslim women I interviewed for my research have been belittled, that they felt they needed to hide parts of their identities, that they've been denied or turned away from worship, and in some cases have ultimately turned away from Islam because of the pain such actions have caused in their lives. 
I hear stories like this all the time, and it literally just happened to me last week. I had to add this in, you know, because I, I was like, I can't not tell this story. I spoke at Duke University last week, and an elderly African-American Muslim woman approached me at the end, and she told me she'd driven two hours to come see me talk. And she had been one of the original founders of the mosque in Greensboro. She'd driven from Greensboro for two hours. And she'd founded this mosque herself and with a few other people in the early 1980s. So she had put blood, sweat, and tears into building this masjid. And for a while, things had been good, she said. You know, it had been a lovely space, and they had a flourishing community. And slowly, you know, as the years passed, the population changed, and she started to feel like a stranger in this place that she had built. She tried to ignore it and focus on her worship, and she tried to ignore the strange looks. Those were correcting her pronunciation. They said she didn't have the proper training, criticizing her clothing. And one day, she told me she was entering the masjid for prayers, and a young man around age 16, 17, blocked her way, staring at her. And she stared back. And she asked him, is there something wrong? And he replied, and this is what she told me, his voice dripping with contempt and suspicion. Who are you? Do you belong here? And she told me she left the mosque that day, the mosque she built, and she has never gone back. This breaks my heart. And though this is entirely not the same thing, it also breaks my heart a little bit <laughs> that I almost didn't want to give this chutbah today, that I tried to find, and Hasna will tell you, I tried to find excuses not to do it, a hundred reasons why I could not, from the start and every single day, I'm like, oh, I can't do it, I can't do a chutbah, I'm a professor, I don't do chutbahs. And even up to this morning, you know, I called my husband, I don't, I can't do it, because I thought I was not qualified, that I had no formal training in the Islamic sciences, that I'm ashamed of my pronunciation, that my almost two decades of work studying Islam in the US and in the most intimate spaces of Muslim women's lives, all while learning to be a Muslim woman myself, was not and could not be enough. It breaks my heart that I was not sure the stories of these women I write about were not enough for a khutbah, because they are. We are. So I want to close my time with you today by returning to the story of Sister Zainab, who I spoke of earlier. So let us imagine together what it might be like to be a woman like Sister Zainab, a woman who, on the south side of Chicago in 1922, chose a new faith, a new lifestyle, a new community, a new path towards God. Without the internet, nor even a lot of books or other materials, Zainab took it upon herself to learn her new faith and to build a life as a Muslim. Documents show that she read Quran, performed Salat, and dressed in what she believed to be Islamic fashion. And you know, there's images of her sometimes using bed sheets and blankets to cover her head in prayer. In other words, she made do, fashioning her Muslimness from the materials and resources she had in hand. And one of these resources was her broken heart. 
her heartbreak of leaving all she had ever known to come north to Chicago, the heartbreak of encountering the same types of racist and sexist violence that she had hoped to leave behind in the South and the North, the heartbreak of doing backbreaking work with little compensation or reward, the heartbreak of knowing how this nation devalued and continues to devalue the contributions of black women. And through this heartbreak, Sister Zainab found community with other women, women who held Quran reading groups, who prayed together, who worked and ran the daily operations of the mosques. They sent out flyers. They taught the children lessons on Islam. They told their family and member, family members and co workers about Islam. They prepared food without pork. They made themselves into American Muslim women who worked, raised their families, made their prayers, and opened themselves every single day to God's light. They made sacrifices for Islam, at times becoming estranged from their families, encountering hostility at work. Mashallah. Alhamdulillah, together here today in this beautiful space, in this beautiful community, let us feel the legacies of their prayers, their sacrifices, their love for God and the Prophet. Peace and blessings be upon him. Let us see and understand that their hardship and their ease is part of the very foundations of our joy here today our community and kinship as U.S. Muslim women. Let us see that women like Sister Zainab and her peers, the women of the Nation of Islam, women like Sister Betty Shabazz and Mother Clara Muhammad, like jazz singer Dakota Staten, whose Muslim name was Ali Arabia, and so many other women like them. Let us see how these women, African-American Muslim women, built Islam's presence, its spirit, and its soul in the United States of America. They are our foremothers, our elders, our resources, our exemplars, our inspiration, whose lives and stories we should treat with honor and respect, that we should learn just as we learn the stories of Hajar, Maryam, Khadija, Aisha, and Fatima. May the blessings and mercy of God be upon them. Let us always remember and recognize the rich and vast, vast, vast history of US Muslim women, of black Muslim women drawing closer to God's light, of their innovation, persistence, improvisation, and resilience, of their heartbreak and joy, their hardship and their ease. Let our hearts be broken by the injustice of this world as theirs were time and time again, so that Allah may expand our chests, so that we may grow our hearts, so our hearts may break together, so that we may come to know one another truly and deeply in our hardship and our ease, in our heartbreak, and in our deep, abiding, and ever-boundless joy. God commands justice, doing good, and generosity towards relatives, and God forgives what is shameful, blameworthy, and oppressive. God teaches you so that you may take heed. Recite what has been revealed to you of the book and, say, and stay consistent in prayer. 
Indeed, prayer restrains the human from lewd and wicked behavior, but the remembrance of God is even greater. And God knows everything you are doing. O oh Allah, I want to thank you again for the blessing of bringing us together today in the presence of the joy we share in your light, your compassion, your merciful love. Amin. Wa as salah. Let's perform the prayer.